0: and welcome to Global Digital Futures Podcast, brought to you by the SOAS Coding Club. I'm your host, Chipoma Pondera, and you're listening to SOAS Radio. This week, we are joined by Aida Al-Kaisi to speak about the landscapes of journalistic practice in the Middle East. Aida is a media reform advisor and has worked extensively on media development projects across the MENA region, including Iraq, Palestine and Jordan. She is currently working on a number of projects focusing on issues related to youth engagement in media, media and conflict social cohesion and the media and the development of independent media platforms in MENA amongst other things. She is completing a PhD at the School of Oriental and African Studies where she also teaches on a part-time basis on media and conflict using Iraq as a case study. Ida is also the program consultant for the Ethical Journalism Network and a keen promoter of ethical values in journalistic practice and media Governance. Hi Ida. Hi Chipper. Thank you for joining us. So I would just like to start by maybe getting an idea of the current tensions between media and democracy in the Middle East with some examples from your work.
1: Okay yeah so the Arab Spring was seen as a catalyst for the development of new media platforms for new avenues for reform of media in the Middle East and North Africa, for freedom of expression, really, to be given a chance to burgeon in the region. Since 2011, there has been a growth of new independent platforms and voices in the Middle East and North Africa. And I would say also that not only are those voices being listened to more in the region, they are also gaining traction internationally and globally as well. And there are a lot of reasons for that, the development of technology, the fact that there is an increased interest in what's happening in the region, um, and the fact a lot of those voices are actually young people as well and actually I think some of the needs and desires and wants of young people in the Middle East are very similar to the needs and desires and wants of young people around the world um, and they're experiencing very similar senses of disillusionment and disenfranchisement. There has also been a lot of work to reform state or public broadcasters in the region. That hasn't gone as well if we're honest with you um, and that is because years on from the um, the Arab Spring, we see a crackdown on freedom of expression from governments in the region. And that's, again, because of the rise of fundamentalist narratives, the fear of terrorism, and also a fear of governments losing control of power and and their populations. So some of the reform work that began in 2011 with state media or public media hasn't necessarily panned out in the way that it should have done. The focus now in the media sector in relationship to strengthening better governance and and democracy is very much about supporting independent platforms um, and independent voices. And again, that's moved away. So again, for a while, a lot of that was sort of in the blogosphere. And we've moved away from that as well because that's been seen as quite problematic as polarisation and sort of political allegiances of the media have become more transparent over the last few years. The media, from my perspective, is in a very different place to where it was 10 years ago in the Middle East and North Africa. But the tensions and challenges remain and perhaps have become even more embedded structurally within the landscape.
0: How would you say that governments and the internet companies or media companies are shaping the media landscape in the MENA.
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting question. In a lot of countries now in the Middle East and North Africa, there has been a move to pass legislation that governs the media and in particular governs the social media sphere in the region under the umbrella or with the excuse of combating hate speech or radical narratives or terrorism, for example. So for example, in Jordan, there have been a number of attempts by government and parliament to pass various cyber crimes laws to try and crack down on freedom of expression, rather than what they say they're doing, which is allowing for greater human rights and and sort of greater freedom of expression. So that that is a huge issue. And as a result, I think we are seeing incidences of, self-censorship in the traditional media and we are seeing governments quite literally close down platforms that might be seen to be in opposition to their narrative again under the guise of combating hate speech or combating radical narratives There's a controlling of the narrative there from governments. Technology companies are slightly different. So it's a well-known fact, and there are a number of different studies. Northwestern University of Qatar, for example, released a study, I think, and that looks at uh, media usage in the region. And carte blanche across most of the Middle East and North Africa now, young people are accessing content via Facebook. Mm. It's the the media platform of choice. Instagram is, is getting up there as well. Snapchat is also really popular. But people are accessing news, media content, clips, whatever it may be, basically via the big technology giants and platforms. They are also very aware on those platforms that they have a role to play in combating some of the sort of issues around preventing violent extremism. And I I hate that term, to be honest with you, but they are very aware that there's a role that they can play in that they are doing some work on the side with governments. But they are also trying to remain involved in conversations around hate speech in the region as well. Facebook have a headquarters in Dubai and Google as well are doing a lot of work in the region. The Google News Initiative, I think, funds now quite a lot of independent media platforms, if you like, in the region. Um, I know that Facebook is keen to think about their role in perpetuating or spreading certain narratives um, in the region. So, so yes, there's a sense that they're both playing very strong roles in developing a certain type of conversation, if you like, around media freedoms.
0: So you were speaking about the government and the attempt to control narrative. How far reaching does that go? Say a media body has an international branch as well. Are they concerned with that as well? Are they concerned with controlling the narrative in a localised sense or is it in a global sense as well? To a
1: certain extent, yes. So in terms of controlling a local narrative, it's much more about perhaps closing down institutions or using local legislation to actually take people to court for certain things that they might have published, for example. In terms of the global narrative, they're less capable, I think, of controlling that. But then it's very easy for them to, for example, not allow a certain international publisher to actually. Actually, attend a press conference, for example, or even open up, register and have an office in a particular city or, or whatever it may be. I should say as well, though, that the, what's also happening in, in many countries in, in the region is that as governments are losing control and as geopolitics comes into play, there is a threat to media freedom that is coming from other avenues as well, other than the kind of traditional government or tech giants route, which is these kind of paralegal quasi-governmental forces, be them militias or be them external representations that are based in country, for example, there is also a sense of this control of the narrative from forces other than forces that we we traditionally recognise. And that's also a big issue in the region as well.
0: We've touched on it a little bit, but can we go deeper into how traditional media is instrumental in the development of national and political identities and how has that shifted in the advent of social media?
1: So I think traditional media does pl- still play a huge role. So I mentioned earlier that actually most young people now, and I'm focusing very much on young people in the region because that they make up 65% of the population actually, they are accessing content via their mobile phones and via t- technology giants, but that content is still television content. So even though they're accessing it through a different means they're not sitting down and watching television as such at a certain time it's still television content or television content that they're sharing and watching so it definitely is still having an influence there is still a historical tradition um, during Ramadan for example the month of Ramadan is a great time for dramas soap operas reality TV shows because everyone sits down and eats together at the same time and they then spend an evening together and you kind of watch television so that still exists so traditional media still is playing a huge role in influencing thinking and political leanings if you like news though i would say is being shaped in different ways or sort of the way people are accessing their news has altered actually i would say even in the last five years so traditionally this eight nine p.m news bulletin and this is happening globally i would say this is this is not a new thing eight 9, nine ten news bulletin would be you sit down watch it that's how you would get your news the kind of you know main evening bulletin and that has changed and again these are global issues the lack of trust in the media is a big issue there have been some issues as people are able to access content from other so We've moved in the Middle East from 10 to 15 years ago, people really only being able to access content on a national basis to a place where they're receiving news and content and information from a diverse number of sources from around the world, basically. In some ways, it's great because it means that people are given access to more avenues, more accurate sources that they can compare with the sources that they were actually um, provided with originally. So it's given them that sort of diversity of choice. But what it means is that we've seen a shift away to. To news sources or acquiring news and information from, as we've seen globally, sources that m- might not necessarily be a hundred percent journalistic or journalists that haven't necessarily been trained in professional or ethical modes of practice, basically. And this is this is a problem across the board. To coin Trump's fake news phrase, if you like, you know it's an issue. The question of disinformation and the fact that actually, once something's out there, it's out there. There's a story of the Guardian printing a story about an epidemic of eyeball licking in Japan, for example, that they printed as a true story and that printed it as like, you know, there's loads of health issues. And it actually transpired that it was a social media story that had gone viral that wasn't actually necessarily true. You know, these are global issues and not necessarily issues that are sort of specific to the MENA region. Where I think the problem lies in the MENA region is the lack of sort of media literacy programs or capacity building programs for journalists that will allow countries or the region to tackle those issues on a grander or larger scale in a longer term way.
0: If you have a high conflict zone, let's say, I don't know if you have any examples of how misinformation can really be a huge issue in that sort of context.
1: Yeah, yeah, so I was in Iraq, actually, and while I was there, Reuters printed a story, and this is Reuters, obviously, the Reuters Wire, I think it was, actually, printed a story about a IED, incendiary explosive device, attack on a mosque in a Shia area in Baghdad dad and they suggested that it was a sectarian act basically and they also printed i think that there had been a number of deaths and it wasn't even like one death or two deaths i think they said there was something like sort of 17 18 deaths This went viral and international and local press. I mean, I saw, for example, one of the Kurdish well-read media organisations printed a story about the return of sectarian violence to Baghdad. Because in theory, you know, over the last couple of years, we've seen a sort of, you know, diminishing of that and a sort of increase, if you like, in sort of, you know, day-to-day security and safety. Um, So, yeah, so this was picked up on by international press. It was picked up by the local press. And suddenly you're building a picture of fear, the rise of sectarian issues. It transpired. They hadn't checked their sources. They hadn't spoken to eyewitnesses on the ground. It transpired. It was a local dispute. Nobody had died. The issue was actually inter-Shia between two militia groups rather than actually an issue between Sunni and Shia or whatever it may be, or or potentially IS or Islamic State, ISIS, whatever you want to call it, and local groups or whatever. So this is where disinformation really becomes an issue because you
0: start to build
1: a picture that doesn't actually exist.
0: Yeah. And what about the journalists themselves. In your book review of Fatima Ali Sawi's book, Arab National Media and Political Change, you spoke about how journalists lose their agency in highly politicised contexts. And you said that the journalists begin to embody a mix of authoritarian and pluralistic practices. How so? Yes, I did say that.
1: (laughs) So yeah, so I think it's really, we can go back to Bourdieu if you like, and sort of, you know, think about the relationship between structure and agency. In societies where structural control dictates how practice is then played out, that suddenly becomes the dominant force, if you like. And it's very difficult to think about yourself as an individual journalist in that environment. I think what happens then is that you then tend to play out the hierarchies, the processes, the practices that you see around you, rather than going back to professional norms or the profession and how you as an individual journalist might work within that profession. I think actually in sort of authoritarian situations, agency suppressed anyway, naturally, it's very difficult to have an individual voice um, in that. And in fact, we do see individual voices in those situations, but they tend to be the voices that are actually affirming or emphasising the, the kind of overriding narrative of the main powers, if you like. That becomes an issue. It's interesting because when we study journalistic practice or when we do work in situations in, in conflict, for example, or situations where authoritarian structures define institutions, we tend to think of journalists as one big homogenous group, which is n- why actually more and more Um, and i know we do have a course at SOAS as well called international Journalisms. it's why we talk about journalisms rather than journalism now and i think that's really important you know the plurality of of different types of practices that come under the umbrella of journalism is something that we haven't really talked about and that actually there might be a different way of performing journalism in egypt to that of Costa Rica that's something that we do need to think about and it's something that SOAS is great actually at at sort of you know giving us the skills to critically think around those areas but it is something that we need to do more of
0: So what roles do media development agencies play in reforming the media landscape then in the MENA who are some of the key players and organisations and what are their you know priorities and what challenges do they face actually a huge number of, of media development agencies that are active in the MENA
1: region the big players are BBC Media Action Thomson Reuters Foundation do some work as well Internews is another big media development organization that have projects across the region. They're IMS, International Media Support, based in Denmark, Free Press Unlimited, based in the Netherlands, Canal France International, based in France. So there are a number of international organizations that are doing work with local stakeholders or local actors or local institutions based in each country or on a regional level. They have very different priorities to the local actors their priorities are split between priorities on the ground and then priorities to their donors and their donors tend to either be the sort of larger foundations open society Bill and Melinda Gates or donor governments. So it's a fine balance because obviously your main priority should be to the beneficiaries of your project but in reality you're reporting back to a donor. So it's a tricky balance I think to find actually for the media development world particularly in a region like MENA where each country has its own challenges. There has been a shift in focus I would say in the last five years towards supporting independent platforms and independent voices. There has also been a bit more work on things like access to information laws and again because we've seen a rise in investigative journalism and data journalism actually so there's been a bit more work on the structural conditions that surround those types of journalism and how they might be facilitated in a better way there has been um, some work on gender which has been quite interesting as well actually there's a great project on gender in iraq at the moment and the internews are involved in Um, They have great partners actually on the ground in Iraq as well across the board. Yeah, there's also been some work on digital rights and there has been some work um, with young people as well. Civil society based work. Media literacy is in its infancy, but something that is also quite interesting. There are a number of different different priority um, areas for for media development actors working in the region. There are a number of different challenges as well. And, you know, I think there are some challenges that are, as I said before, the challenges that we're seeing to the media on on a global scale as we enter into an age where technology is defining a lot of the way that journalism is not only created but also disseminated. We are also coming into a place where the role of the journalist is changing globally. So it's the It's no longer the role of a journalist to go out and find information and then put it into some kind of text form. The information's already there. The journalist is becoming much more of an an analyst, if you like, of that information, you know. Anyone can find the information. It's up to the journalist, really, to find a way to make that understandable and relevant and in the public interest, basically. So it's interesting how the role of the journalist has changed. Again, data journalism is bringing very different types of people into journalism and creating very interesting and new ways of investigating and reporting on stories.
0: What is data journalism exactly? Data journalism is a field of
1: journalism which is becoming very ubiquitous and probably at the forefront of where journalism is going. And it is journalism that takes data sets from official sources. So if, for example, the UN releases a set of data about poverty around the world, it's about taking those data sets and analysing them and from that producing something of public interest. The Panama Papers, for example, began as a piece of data journalism. So with the Panama Papers expose, a number of media organizations, journalists around the world were given access to data from elite source. It wasn't actually from an official source, but access to the financial accounts of a number of different offshore companies. And as a result, a global investigation produced some stories that showed how some leading key figures were actually evading tax. Yeah. And it brought down a number of very senior government officials around the world. That began as data journalism. There's, there's some great interesting work that is a sort of hybrid of some traditional journalism and tech, because it data journalism is very much about beginning with a set of data. It's about cleaning up a set of data. It's about analysing and you, you use open source tools to analyse some of that data. You use Google Analytics, you know, any whatever it may be, basically there are a number of tools specifically aimed at data journalists, but again, a lot of it is Excel spreadsheets and just looking at data and kind of coming up with the story, if you like. But it definitely feels like it's at the forefront of a groundbreaking work. And in global north countries, if you like, we have access to information laws that mean that any journalist or any member of the public can request figures from our governments, yeah. basically. Whereas in a lot of countries in the global south, that's less the case. And that makes data journalism even more interesting because you're accessing Data,
0: or you're kind of producing investigations in very different ways. Had you finished speaking about the challenges of media development in the MENA, I sort of like cut in. cut in.
1: So, yeah, so what I was saying was, yeah, so the challenges are are, are similar. Um, There are some very similar challenges to what the media is experiencing globally, which is around what journalism actually is. And then there are also some sort of fragile state type challenges that come into effect in the MENA region. There is endemic corruption across the region, for example, and that has a huge impact on practice. For example, if you live in a country where people expect money to do something, it becomes expected that getting someone to a press conference might require paying them. And that then becomes embedded in journalistic practice, for example, or civil society practice, if you like. So there are some issues around fragile states that also come into play and in, in sort of our challenges for the media development world as well. And then there are some endemic issues with a lack of education, media schools and colleges, for examples, in the region. There's been very little work done in terms of updating their curriculum to allow journalists to then be trained or sort of media students to be given the training they need to be journalists in a digital world. I'd say there's a triangulation, if you like, of issues or challenges. One are issues that we're facing about an identity crisis of the media around the world. The second is a sort of fragile state issue. And then the third are the embedded issues, practical issues around education and civil society. And the sort of notion of journalism, which is still tied back to a journalist being allied to the state from 15, 20 years ago under authoritarian regimes. Very
0: interesting. So the importance of developing media and digital literacy is very great. And can you just tell us why it's so important and what methods can be used to increase media and digital literacy in the manner and with some examples from your work?
1: So the most interesting project, I think, and I think it's actually quite a unique media literacy project, is one run by UNESCO in Jordan. And what they're doing is is they are working with an organisation called the Jordan Media Institute, which is a media school, to run media literacy clubs in schools in Jordan. So they're starting at a very young age. I think they start from age 10 upwards in schools. And they basically teach young Jordanians about how to produce media so that they understand how narratives can be influenced and shaped throughout the process of creating a piece of content it's a really nice project actually and they're doing it not just in amman which is the capital of jordan but they're doing them across around across the country and in some of the sort of more rural and tribal areas for example so yeah so that's a really interesting project and i think it could be a sort of benchmark for how we think about rolling out media literacy programs across the region there has been some work done in tunisia as well on media literacy which has followed a sort of similar format but yeah i think it's about instilling a sense of how media is created at a very Young age, so that you understand the process by which a narrative forms, um, and then you can understand the role that media might play.
0: And can you contextualize also the tensions between youth and the media in the MENA? you mentioned that young people there like everywhere feel a bit disillusioned disenfranchised I think young people are always quite keen to try new things and be at the cutting edge and perhaps there's some tensions with access or you know just freedom to do that can you yeah give us a bit of context on that?
1: Yeah, one of the
0: issues
1: with the mainstream media in the region is the lack of representation of young people on screen or in print or on, on radio, even for example. So there's very little content that's being created specifically for a young audience. I mean, there are there's some brilliant examples of young people creating their own content. For example, there's some great satire, comedy, comic cartoon-type work coming out of the region, which is really interesting. But in the main... Um, young people are not represented in the media. And you very rarely see young people used as sources or young people on panels, on talk shows, for example. And I think that's something that needs to change. And I think, you know, this is also something that's fairly new in all media, but we're seeing it a lot and more and more now in the sort of North, if you like, rather than the global South. Where young people are producing and working on some interesting Content is very niche. So there are some really, really interesting independent news websites in the region. Heber in Jordan is one of them. Inkifada in Tunisia is another one. And they are a group of data journalists, actually, who are doing some really interesting work. Uh, Medam Mosser in Egypt. Ledesk in Morocco. There are a few other, other organizations as well. And then they tend to be younger tech savvy and new savvy um, individuals that are trying to speak to a younger audience but they are very niche it's a tricky one i also think there is this you know the lack of economic opportunity in the region combined with a desire for change but any attempt at change being completely squashed and curbed by powerful bodies means that there is a sense of disenfranchisement and a sort of lack of a feeling of belonging in the region, which is a huge issue. But there are some interesting new channels and voices. Podcasting is actually becoming quite a popular form of content in the region. There's a brilliant podcasting company in Jordan called Salt, who are doing some really interesting work, and it's very much aimed at a young audience. There's also some work coming out of Tunisia and even Iraq. So new technologies and platforms are seeing younger voices in in the public sphere. But it's on a very small niche basis. And I think that's where we need to think about combining media literacy programs with some of this new content that's coming out so that we can grow the audience shares of some of those kind of new independent platforms.
0: So just as a last question, if you have any other insights or hopes for where you think that this conversation might go you know in the next year or so or any projects that you want to highlight or mention i wish there was a
1: more entrenched conversation in the region around issues related to climate change because I actually think that this ties in politically and economically to a lot of the sort of wider issues that are affecting young people in the region. And I wonder what role the media can play in that. I do see some really interesting investigative work and data-led projects coming out of the region. I expect to see more of those. Radio and podcasting are also areas for potential, which I think is great. Also, I think one of the issues we have with the Middle East and North Africa, and this is something that needs to be dealt with on a global scale, is that we tend to just see them as the Middle East and North Africa. And I think this is one of the problems we have is that issues that the media are facing in MENA are very similar issues to that which we're seeing on a global scale mm. the impact they have on the ground is different but essentially I think there needs to be a sort of global conversation that Mina Actors are part of. And I think there's a disparity on a global level as well. So often they're not invited into these global conversations about lack of public trust in the media, for example, or the impact of technology on journalism, for example. But then I also think that in the MENA, there needs to be a sense of agency and there needs to be a bigger drive to say it might be a long-term process but there are ways that we can come out of the situation that we're in rather than a sense of hopelessness which is understandable but I think we need to come out of that in the Middle East North Africa and I think one of the ways to do that is to become part of some of the really interesting global conversations that are happening around media freedoms and freedom of expression.
0: Great thank you so much Ida some really great insights and perspectives for our listeners to discover more about this topic, you can access the following resources available in the show notes on our website. Ida was invited to the LSE for the launch of her report, A Fragmented Landscape, Barriers to Independent Media in Iraq. You can listen to the discussion on the LSE Middle East Center's podcast. Discover videos from the LSE Middle East Centre on their YouTube page and you can read ida's paper normalization of war and conflict in iraq's iraqia television published in the middle east journal of culture and communication you can also read ida's review of the book Arab National Media and Political Change Recording the Transition by Fatima Al-Isawi and that was written for the LSE Watch the video Non-Key Expert of Med Media Presenting the Impact of the Project on the Reform of Public Service Broadcasters in the Region and that's on the Med Media Network YouTube and read the report by Dima Dabous for Med Media Assessment of Public Service Broadcasting in the Southern Mediterranean Region and finally read the report by Ida for Med Media. What do young people in the Arab World Want from their national broadcasters? You can find us online at SOAS Coding Club, follow us on Facebook at SOAS Coding Club, and on Twitter at SOAS Coding Club. We broadcast every two weeks, so tune in to discover what's to come in your global digital futures.